also streaming live at newhavenindependent.org. I'm Mubaraka Ibrahim, and you're listening to Mornings with Mubaraka, your Wednesday morning voice where we talk about national issues from a local level through a lens of diversity. I want to welcome you to the show today. You know it's Wednesday and it's 10 a.m. because my voice is on your radio dial. Today we are having a conversation about surviving and thriving beyond the, the foster care system. The U.S. Health and Human Service Administration for Children and Families says that gives a statistic that on any given day that there are nearly 428,000 children in foster care in the United States. In 2015, over 670,000 children spent time in U.S. foster care. On average, children remain in state care for nearly two years, and 6% of children in foster care have languished there for five years or more. Um, When we talk about foster care in Connecticut, we are talking about children who are in various forms of foster care. That may mean in shelters, in DCF facilities, in foster homes, independent living, um, people who are in relative care or residential facilities or safe homes. And the Connecticut statistic is that on there's about six thousand four hundred children um, that's currently in the foster care system in Connecticut. We know that we have heard um, various statistics and stories, some of us anyway, of how children fare both good and not so good in the foster care system. So I am glad to hear a firsthand story from a young man this morning who survived and is now thriving beyond the foster care system. Um, Demetrius I'm going to get the last name right. Hold on. <laughs> Demetrius Napolitano. <laughs> I knew I was going to mess it up. Oh, my God. I'm so sorry. No, you got it. You got it. <laughs> so Demetrius is joining us on the phone from uh, from New York. And that w- let me tell you a little bit about Demetrius. Um, Demetrius, he grew, he grew up in child protective services and and he was taken from his mom as an infant due to drug abuse and neglect. By the time he was in kindergarten, he had lived in three foster homes. Um, Demetrius thought he had a forever mom when he was adopted at six by Miss Johnson, but life was not peaceful at the Johnson home. Several years later, she gave Demetrius back to the system in what's called a broken adoption. Um, Demetrius' childhood got a little harder. He constantly moved, living in 25 foster homes and attending five high schools and lost trust in authority. Demetrius seemed destined to become another statistic, except he didn't. Almost miraculously, caring adults began to take notice of Demetrius and recognize his potential. His social worker helped him find a stable home. His attorney helped him find a good high school. He graduated with his associate's degree from St. John's University and is now finishing his bachelor's degree at New York University. Thank you so much, Demetrius, for joining us. I appreciate you calling in. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Oh, so... One of the things that, so let's start, I like to kind of like go almost in chronological order. I think that that, that, that helps me visualize. So you were um, given up as a, well, or you were taken from your mom as an infant. Um, at what point in your childhood did you 
realize that you were a foster kid? Um, I, if I can remember correctly, back when I was about maybe four years old, I, I was in a home with two of my older foster brothers, uh, maybe even younger than that. But I remember um, just, I remember living, like being inside a basement. And uh, I remember being in there with my brothers and uh, we experienced different forms of uh, abuse. But those were like my first memories. And when uh, when I moved into when I moved into my adoptive home when I was uh, five years old, I that's when I was like, okay, something is not right because I already moved for like three different families, and uh, it, it, but it was at that point when I realized that something that I'm in uh, I'm in something other than what I'm supposed to be. In, if that makes sense. <laughs> you 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 recognize the instability wasn't what family a family was supposed to be. Yeah, because I, I was in like three, four different families and I'm five, four or five years old. And so at this early age, I was able to catch on and say, OK, something something is not right. And then my middle brother, uh, Lazarus, he his father took him out the system. So it was just me and my oldest brother. So now this separation, when that separation really, that's when it, it, it showed me, OK, that something is not right. And uh, I mean, I couldn't articulate myself because I had a, a stuttering problem. But um, but it was at that at an early age I realized that um, that this wasn't like this wasn't normal. Okay, and one of the things that you mention in your in your bio and in some of the, the 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 speeches that's on your website is that when you were six you were adopted by Miss Johnson and you thought that that was your forever mom. Tell me about that experience of. Um, when you were first adopted by her, what, what what was the what was the I guess the the transition mentally when you said, OK, I'm no longer going to be in and out of the foster system to really thinking that that was where you were going. That was going to be your home. Well, um, uh, I remember like I remember when I was five years old, I remember when my uh, social worker, she brought me to Mrs. Johnson's home. And I remember walking in the hallway to the apartment. There were like the walls that had like a a certain design to it that I remember touching. And I remember I was like, wow, these are cool designs. And and now when I was walking into the apartment, I remember, um, you know, the, the person she, the, the, my grandmother. Huh, I'm still, I call her my grandmother sometimes because I still have a lot of respect for the woman. I have a lot of respect and love for her. Uh, so sometimes I say Miss Johnson or sometimes I say my grandma. But uh, my grandmother, Miss Johnson, she introduced herself, and um, and I, I, it was it was good. First couple of years, um, I I stay. I ended up staying there for. Uh, I, I left her home when I was thirteen, but from six to thirteen, a lot of things happened. And I, I, I will first and foremost say this: that I wasn't an easy child. I had a lot of problems, and so I did things that that were. Uh, and at, she was a little bit older. She was in her mid-60s at the time. So, because um, I, I never wanted to seem like I'm putting the blame on her. But I, um, but I, when I was in her home, uh, I mean, I was physically, sexually abused, verbally abused. Um, um, and at 13 years old, I, I think that's when I had enough of it. Uh, and I had connected. I'm, I'm jumping the story, but um, I connected with a cousin and then I was put back into the foster care system. But while I was in this home for all those years, 
uh, yeah, a, a lot happened. Um, like I said, various forms of abuse. Uh, it, I ran away a lot of times because I didn't want to be there. But my biological mother, um, before she she died when I was 10 years old, she uh, made Miss Johnson promise her that she would take care of me and my older brother no matter what. So she was my adoptive mother, Miss Johnson. She promised my biological mother that she would take care of us forever. Um, so, so let me ask you, pro- throughout mm-hmm. the time that you were in the foster care system, did you have contact with your biological mother? Uh, I, not that I remember. only have like one or two memories of her. Because uh, my mother, my mother died of cancer, so she was sick way before I, I even knew about it. Uh, so uh, my oldest brother, my two, my all, all my oldest siblings, I have four older siblings. They all had a relationship with my mom. So throughout the years, I was very envious of them because they did have a relationship with her, and I was too young at the time to even understand what was going on. But uh, I did not have any relationship with her. Uh, I did remember. I do remember speaking to her on the phone like once or twice, but uh, nothing that. Not, not a solid memory that I remember. You didn't have, like, visits from her or things like that? Uh, I, I, I remember, like, one or two visits, but these, these are, like, like, like when I was, like, eight, nine years old, so it's hard, but and that to show you that, like, these memories, it wasn't frequent. It was, like, once or twice that I even, okay. I don't even remember how my mother looked. Um, okay. All right. Uh, so... So, so I, I think that that's a that's an interesting experience for me and for for my listeners to hear of of kind of like how you went from foster from foster home to foster home and even in in the one that you thought would be your forever home. Um, and I, I'm I'm using forever home people as a quote from him on his site <laughs> and his forever mom um, that it still was not. It, it still was not home. It still was not a place of safety for you. And so now take me to you. You leave or you're placed back inside the foster system when you're about 13. And it seems like from here, this is kind of like where your life started changing around a little. Other adults began to take notice of you. Tell me about about that. And who who what was that first experience of you who was that person that you felt, okay, this person is really trying to help me? Right. Well, um, I just want to point this out. So uh, my adoptive mother also changed my name. So my biological name is Sharon Taylor. And when I got adopted, she changed it to Demetrius Johnson. Um, just a little note, I'm getting adopted again. So that's why my name is changing again to Demetrius Napolitano. But, um, and then that's going back to the forever home and, because you, you now you changed my whole identity. So mm-hmm. I mean, essentially, so I she am gave yours. you her you, name. She gave me. She gave me and my oldest brother her name. She adopted both of us. And then uh, my brother, oldest brother, he, I think he was about maybe seventeen, eighteen. He got locked up for eight years, so he was out of the picture. So um, here I am, thirteen years old, before I re-entered the foster care system. My mom died at ten years old, so I was doing at thirteen. I finally. I was yearning for my mother. So I started to, now I'm starting to harbor my anger inside of me. Uh, My adoptive mother, our relationship is is not, it's a lot of friction going on between us. And she pretty much gave up her rights. And at at 13, like I said, I was sexually abused. So now I'm starting to uh, process all of these things. 
and I was heavy on medication. Um, so these things, so at 13 years old, I started to act out. And my, I guess I got, uh, I was too much for my adoptive mother, and I ran away. I ran away to a cousin's home in uh, Brooklyn, New York. And she asked me, she said, do you want to go back to Mrs. Johnson's home? Because I ran away several times when I was a kid because I didn't want to be in her home because of all of the abuses. Uh, But I always went back because I didn't have nowhere else to go. Mm. Um, And I told my cousin, I was like, no, I don't want to go back there. And uh, I don't want to because I, I, to a certain extent, I was afraid for my life. Um, Now, now, let let me ask you from a, just, just, again, this is a um, person outside looking in. Um, As when the abuse started occurring, do you have contact with your social worker that you could, talk to or was the social worker somebody you felt you couldn't talk to to tell them these things where does the social worker fit in this picture and and I'll say just from my and I don't know a lot about the foster care system but hearing a lot of stories abusive stories um, whether it's physical abuse or sexual abuse is something that I hear about a lot and I'm always curious as to where is the social worker in all of this? It, does the social worker come for visits? Do they just, once you're adopted, they leave you? Like, how, where does the social worker fit in this? All right. So for me, because I was adopted, uh, I, I, I remember my social worker, I think after I moved into Mrs. Johnson's home, I think I saw her like once or twice after uh, she, my social worker moved me to Mrs. Johnson's home. But after that, I never saw her again. Uh, mm-hmm. So even when, I remember my my adoptive mother would say she would say oh she would show me like these like juveniles on TV young people who had committed an, uh, a, a crime and were locked up and she would say oh this is where you're going if you don't behave yourself and um, and that put so much fear inside of me and of course I would have loved to talk to a social worker but no one's there no no one's checking up on me so I um, but this is the years of resentment that started to grow inside of me towards my adoptive mother and just that home. Um, but my social worker, I didn't get a new social worker until I re-entered foster care at 13 years old. And that's when my whole life kind of took a, a change, a turn. Um, yeah, but my social worker, I'm skipping ahead, but my social worker who, uh, who who I'm really good friends with, well, she's like, she's my mom now. Uh, and um, But she she was the person who saved my life. Mm. Um, because if it wasn't for her, I would be either dead, homeless, or in jail. Mm. Uh, but she took me under her wing at 13 years old, and even when I got locked up and I was in uh, juvenile detention for a couple of months, and when I was homeless and I was running away, I was doing I was doing everything. Even my own agency, they were like, "Oh, he's a problem child. Just he just throw him throw him away." She was like, "No, my my boy's gonna make it." And, um, yeah, it was a long journey. (laughs) So, so, okay. So tell me, so tell me about, let's talk a little bit about this, the transition of you. So you being a a problem child, as you said, um, and you went into juvie. Mm -hmm. Well, you, so you got a new social worker first and then you went into juvie for a few months and then you came out and what happens then? Okay, so just to get the ages right, so I re-entered the foster care system at 13 years old. I um, was I was sent to juvenile detention when I was 15, and I was in there for three months, and I I got out September 30th. And the only reason I remember that date 
is because my birthday, my 16th birthday was is October, was October 11th. And I remember saying to myself, if I'm in here for my 16th birthday, I'm going to turn up. But <laughs> by the grace of God, I was released. But at when I was locked up, that's when the whole, like, that's when the change happened. Uh, that's when I kind of, if you will, that's when I woke up. Because now my freedom was taken away. I realized, and while I was locked up, I called my adoptive mother because I still had a personal, very powerful relationship with her. And to a certain extent, I still do to this day because she did raise me. She did instill in me all the manners I have today. The gentleman that opens the door, that gives up his seat, that is because of my adoptive mother. So I always have to pay homage to her. But while I was in this, when I was while I was in this juvenile detention, I reached out to my adoptive mother. And at the time, my oldest brother was also locked up. And when I called her, she said, she said the exact same word. She said, you wanted the world. Now you have the world. And um, even when the agency reached out to her, she said to them, you, you guys created this monster. Now you deal with him. So for me, it was like, I'm reaching, here I am reaching out to you. I'm already down on my luck. I'm, I'm down. <laughs> I'm just struggling. I, and you, you kick me while I'm down. So that really kind of woke me up. And, um, and I almost gave up hope. But for my social worker, she was. She came and visited me on uh, on Sunday, and I was like, "Yo, you're not getting paid for this, though." And she said, "When will you get it? Like, this is you're not a check to me. You're more to me than a check. Like, I will." And so it was just those small acts that she did that reminded me that even though my adoptive mother, the woman that I keep reaching back out to, even though she, she even though she kicked me while I was down, there's still someone else who cares deeply about me that sees a future, a future that I can't even see for myself. Mm-hmm. And so it was that hope that my my social worker, Miss Miss Ince, she had in me that really triggered the change. Because uh, at that time, I dropped out of high school. Uh-huh, go ahead. No, go ahead. I, I'm listening. You dropped out oh, of high school. Oh. <laughs> uh, at that time, when I was locked, when I was uh, inside of juvenile detention, I, I, I dropped out of high school because... When I left my adoptive mother's at, when I left my adoptive mother home at thirteen, when I asked for my clothes because I ran away, but I was so used to coming back that I didn't grab anything. I I, I was like, oh well, I'm running away, but I'm going I'm going to come back. So I didn't take any of my clothes. But when the agency reached out to her, like, oh, can we get some of his clothes? She was like, no, I bought all of these clothes. He's not getting nothing. So mm-hmm. I uh, and then from thirteen to. I mean, 22, I was, every week, it, it felt like I was bouncing to a different foster home. So the foster parents, they didn't really have the money or uh, the time to even buy me clothes. So I was had a little piece, I had a few pieces, so I was getting teased at school. So I just dropped out of high school, and I would just stay home. And um, But while I was in this juvenile detention, my social worker, she, we made a promise, um, and this is like the famous promise that I always talk about, but I promise she... Uh, um, I, when I told Miss Ince, I said, you know, just give up on me, just leave me like everyone else did. She said, Demetrius, you will leave me before I ever leave you. Mm. And that was like, it was so powerful that it resonated with me. And I was like, yo, this woman just won't go away. No matter <laughs> what I do, no matter what I say, she, like, it was so funny because even when I did wrong things, she found ways to justify it. Like, for instance, I, I would steal money from my foster parents, but I didn't have nothing. And I, when she would come, I'm like, oh, here she comes. And the, she was, the first parents would tell my social worker, and I was like, oh, she's going to take, she's going to take that side. She was, and she would say, well, maybe if you gave him an allowance, maybe he wouldn't steal. And for me, I was like, wow, look, look she stands up for me even when I'm wrong. 
But behind closed doors, she would say, Demetrius, you know that's not what you're supposed to do. So it it was like she didn't belittle me in front of others, but she condemned me for it behind closed doors as a mother, as a social worker should. Um, but it was like this constant, this person just won't go away and this person believes in me. Mm. Even when her supervisors and her coworkers were like, yo, you, that child is lost, leave him. And she was like, no. <laughs> so wow. long story short, when I, when I got out of, uh, when I got out of a juvenile detention at 13, uh, that promise, she said, I will never, she said, you will leave me before I leave you. I promised her, if you stay by my side, I will enroll back in high school, graduate and go to college. So that was that promise. If you stay by my side, I will chase my education. And for starters, for the beginning, I almost was doing it for her. Uh, and she was okay with that because she knew eventually I, I would uh, soar my own and, and chase my education on my own, which I'm doing now. But <laughs> I'm talking a lot. <laughs> no, this is great. You know, one you of the me? I am totally following you. One of the, the things that I wanted to do with you on the show is really give you an opportunity to share your story. I don't think that we I know I don't um, on a regular basis or enough hear the actual real life stories of people who who go through things that are very relevant to the laws we pass, to the way that we run our systems. Mm-hmm. I think that that's really important. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to WNHHLP 103.5 FM, New Haven's home for community radio, streaming live on newhavenindependent.org. I'm Mubaraka Ibrahim, and this is Mornings with Mubaraka, where we are talking about surviving and thriving beyond the foster care system with Demetrius Nepi. Lano. No, no, I didn't. Get... <laughs> you got it. You got it. <laughs> I almost got it, people. I almost got it. <laughs> um, you can end it though. Don't worry. <laughs> who grew up in the foster care system and now thrives as a college student and um, and uh, motivational speaker. He's currently pursuing his bachelor's degree degree at New York University. And he is telling us a story and the profound shift that was made when his social worker found interest in him and supported him. And that's really profound how one person and I think that the important part that I take from that part of your story is that it, sometimes it doesn't take major something major to happen. It can take one person that can change your life um, when you now when she so. You have a social worker now that actually cares for you and cares how Mm -hmm. you turn out beyond her eight hours a day. And that is what gave you confidence in yourself to continue um, your own improvement. So as you so you went back to school, you Mm -hmm. throughout your high school, you were moved several times, correct? Yes. Is Uh, that while in high school? Now, as you're so you're in the so at this time, you're in the uh, foster care system in the state of New York. So are you just are you moving to different cities? What was the what was the distance like? Are you like put inside of completely different neighborhoods, different cities? How was the how do they choose where you are placed? Yeah, so they um, thought I've lived in uh, four out of the five boroughs. 
And, uh, well, actually three, because I never really technically lived in Queens. Oh, no, I'm lying. I did live in Queens when I was there in four, far away. But uh, I lived in, uh, yeah, the four boroughs, and I went as far. They moved me as far as moving me to uh, Mount Vernon, which mm-hmm. is, like, far past the Bronx. And that was, even when they moved me up there, I felt so disconnected from everybody, even my social work, because it was, like, a whole hour away from the city. And that, like, that really started to bring my emotions out and, um, you know, in one way, it traumatized me because now it's like you're removing me from everyone and everything that I know. Uh, but yeah, and um, yeah, <laughs> and I went to—I was in different high schools. Uh, I went to uh, four and a half technically because one I was only there for like a couple of days, but uh, four high schools. And uh, through a lot of hard work, I'm talking about. Oh my gosh, it was a lot. I eventually graduated. I graduated from Freedom Academy High School, and I, that was the last. Uh, it was the last year before the school eventually uh, closed down, but uh, I graduated with an advanced reader's diploma, and uh, I graduated with honors, which was a huge accomplishment. And Amazing. Me because uh, throughout my life growing up, my adopted parents, adopted mother, and others was telling me, oh, not going to be enough, and I'm not smart enough. And then even being heavily medicated, that traumatizes you in the sense that you feel as if you're not smart enough, like... Uh, it, it gets now, really now. Now, why uh, were you? My <laughs> now, were you medicated yeah. because of behavior? Yeah, that that was that's what they said. Okay. But, uh, <laughs> I, I I I'm not an advocate of uh, medication uh, because I it was times when my teacher would say to me, "Oh, to Sharon, my biological name, to Sharon, are you on your medication today?" And that bothered me so much because. That shows me that you can you you can see when I'm on my medication when I'm not on my medication and I realized what it was doing to me. Um, I'll share this brief story. I was talking with my social worker a couple of weeks ago and she was telling me at uh, 16 years old. Um, no, I was, I'm 13. Uh, I think, uh, if I'm not mistaken, they were trying to put me put me back on medication and I had went and saw the psychiatrist and within a three minute conversation, I came out of and this is what she's telling me. Uh, she said, you came out of the room and you said to me, you said, you see, Ms. Vince, uh, I only spoke to the guy for three minutes and he's prescribing all of these medications. And I said, I'm, I'm sick of this. Uh, mm-hmm. No one's speaking up for me and no one's listening to me. And she went inside there and it was like, she said to the guy, she said, to the doctor, she said, how can you prescribe him to all of these medications and you only spoke to him for three minutes, four or five minutes? Mm-hmm. And he was like, well... He's, I don't know what he said, but long story short, he took me off the medication. So that's how I got off the medication. Mm-hmm. And so that there goes the advocacy. When I couldn't speak for myself, she stood up for me. I came to her with my complaints and what was hurting me. And she said, you know what? No, you don't need medication. And these individuals only speak to you for three, four, five minutes. And then they prescribe all of the medications in the world. So that was, an- so that was another I instance a- where she really listened to you and she took action. Absolutely. Exactly. Excellent. So anybody else would have been like, oh, well, just brushed it off. And I would right. have to continue taking medication. Which I would not have been the I would not have become the person I am today. Right. So one of the one of the things that was that was really um, interesting to me. So is your testimony in front of Congress. So I think that what makes it a, a fascinating story is how you really have thrived beyond going through all of the challenges you have in your life. And then you get an internship and 
you're not just speaking up for children in the foster care system. You're actually suggesting policy change. Tell me about how that came about. Yeah, so I I uh, had a I got introduced to this internship. It's called CCAI, uh, the FYI program, Foster Youth Internship. Uh, it, that program changed my life entirely. But anyways, you uh, twelve young people in foster care. They they uh, moved to DC for the entire summer, and they uh, write a policy paper uh, uh, on foster care, and they and they work for the senator or, or a house member of their state. So I had the uh, honors of working for the senator of my home state, New York Senator Kirsten Gillibrand, which is an amazing opportunity. But on the side of that, I wrote uh, my policy paper, uh, which is titled, um, uh, some, I don't forget the title right now, I've been doing so much, but uh, it's basically about adoption subsidy fraud. So my adoptive mother, she was receiving a subsidy to take care of me up until I was 21. And uh, she also was doing the same thing. She was also getting checked by the government. This for is my oldest brother. This is Miss Johnson. He was locked up. This is the Miss Miss Johnson. Yeah. Okay. So uh, when I found out that she was still receiving a check from me, I'm like, wait, what? How is she receiving a check from me when I moved out of her home thir- uh, when I was 13? And that bothered me so much that uh, I spent the whole summer researching about adoption subsidy fraud. And um, yeah, I presented it to Congress and. If I'm not mistaken, uh, Senator Grassley of Idaho and another senator, if they're interested in uh, pushing uh, pushing for that legislation, hopefully keep my fingers crossed. Uh, but it so was, what is what is powerful. what is the legislation that you recommended? So, <laughs> good question. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right. So basically, I I want uh, I want there to be a termination terminate. Uh, Yes, termination of the adoptions. Basically, when the adoptive parent is not providing an adequate level of support to the young person, uh, like in my case, I was not even in the adopt in my adoptive mother's home, and she was receiving thousands of dollars from me. Um, so my argument is, when when it sounds because you have a lot of young people, but that so so here's my question. So that seemed like that seems like a very common sense policy. So does the policy not exist? Is this a new policy? It seems very common sense. You're not caring for the child. You don't get the money. Like, is that not a policy? Well, see, the way when Congress created the law, um, the adoption subsidy law back in 1980, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm trying to think about, like, remember about this paper that I wrote. But when Congress wrote this, when they wrote this law, they couldn't foresee that adoptive parents would find loopholes in the system. They left. They put the onus on the adoptive parents to say, when they're when they are no longer supporting the young person, to go to the agency and say, um, "This young person is no longer in my home. I am providing no form of support to this oh, young person. Okay. I don't. I don't." They have to self-report. The they have to self-report. They, yes, and ah. the the chances of that happening of not very very slim. Uh, okay. Sure okay. In the world, but uh, so. And, and until that, there's only three instances where a subsidy can be terminated uh, if if there's found that the parent is not provided any form of support, and any form of support is so broad, a person, a parent, adopt, a former adoptive parent can be sending a young person, let's say, a card once a year, and and that can be uh, backed up as a as a, a emotional support. Wow, so they can really? argue that, and then that that subsidy will continue. 
um, to be uh, given to the adoptive mother. So essentially, taxpayers are paid twice for the same young person. Uh, in my case, they paid twice for me, twice for once, and an adoption subsidy to my adoptive mother, and then once again uh, to my fourth parent. And mm. um, and it's like the same woman was getting an adoption subsidy for me when I was going back to her home, like 17, 18, 19, trying to reconcile with her, trying to rebuild that broken relationship, and she would close the door on my face. Mm-hmm. And I left her home many times uh, when I was in my late teenage years in tears, and the same woman was going to check for me. So that that's is, that's, my passion. That, that's, mm-hmm. that's really, that's one, it's disturbing. <laughs> Number two, it's it's really, I think that it's really commendable that you actually see it in terms of not just what's going on with you personally, but in terms of policy. So tell me, do you have some political aspirations behind all of this experience? Oh, yes, I absolutely do. My dream is to become the president of the United States. All right. All right. That's what I'm talking about. <laughs> and what's 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 the name you're about? You're about to change your name again. So so what is it so we can remember? <laughs> oh, oh, yeah. It's, it's um yeah, it's, it's going to be changing in the next couple of uh, weeks. But it's Demetrius Napolitano. Napolitano. Uh, Napolitano. I got it. I got it. Okay. So, <laughs> Demetrius Napolitano. He's going to be the next president, y'all. Uh-huh. How old are you? How old are you now? I'm twenty-two. All right. So, what do we we have to be? Thirty-five to be president. Forty-six. Thirty-six. Thirty-six. Got to be thirty-six to be president. So you got we got about twenty-four years. Twenty. Yeah, I got about thirteen years. 13 years, 13 years, 36, not 46. Don't worry, I'm working on it. I'm working on it. All right, he's going to be president, y'all. All right, and he's going to make some big changes. (laughs) That sounds good. Please believe me. That's right. I believe you. I believe you. And so before president, what what what's your what's your political aspiration? Do you plan on running for governor first for what do you want to do? Um. Well, I um, so my my immediate dream right now is to get into Harvard Law School. So that's why I'm like working my tail off to get into Harvard. And uh, I'm, uh, after Harvard, I don't I don't really know how this is all going to pan out. Okay. But, uh, but I do want to become the senator of my home state uh, because that's that's one pathway. Um, but uh, so I don't really know how I'm going to get there. But okay. I. I have an idea, and uh, I'm moving in that. I'm moving, moving not, in that I am, direction. At least moving in the right direction, uh, which is to go to law school. I mean, you can. I mean, as we have seen from our current administration, that you can become president, and you don't even need to. In other this ways. is true. But, I wanna, <laughs> By the time you run, we're going to have a whole different set of standards. We already started. <laughs> um. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I'm going the traditional way because I want to learn the law. Because okay. when I'm defending people and whatnot, I want to be able to, you feel me, know the, right. know the facts. Absolutely. So. <laughs> if you're just tuning in, you're listening to WNHHLP 103.5 FM, New Haven's home for community radio. We are talking to Demetrius Napolitano, <laughs> who survived and thrives beyond the foster care system. Um, and... He's working on a really interesting project. So you're working on a storytelling project. Tell me about that. Yes. So um, I, I should all right, make it real brief. Um, I'm working on a project and it's, called, it's going to be called Writing for Freedom. And the whole goal of Writing for Freedom, uh, it's, 
it's going to be um, to um, hold on, sorry. Uh, oh, oh, the whole goal is to have young people in foster care uh, write their stories and share it with the world, um, because you have foster parents who don't know exactly what they're getting themselves into when they sign up to be foster parents. You have social workers who are very enthusiasm enthusiastic about enthusiasm about going becoming a social worker, but they don't know what they're getting themselves into. You have uh, even when I was on Capitol Hill, I was speaking to Congress members, and as I was sharing my story, they were looking at me like, "Wow, that goes on in the system." So you have all of these individuals who work have a finger inside the foster care system that they do not know. Or, or they don't actually know what goes on, what they, what my brothers and sisters go through. So right in for freedom, it's going to, and I'm still working on it right now, uh, uh, but uh, it's going to be a platform for all young people around the world to write their stories and for them to share it with the, with the world because if we're going to make the foster care system a better place for the young people, we have to know what they're going through so that we can make laws and we can hire Post, uh, staff and we can get we can recruit more force friends so they know um, so they know exactly what they what they getting themselves into. I'm sorry, I'm still like in idea mode. So <laughs> so, so with like this, when you them. when you put these stories together, what do you plan on doing with them? Um, I, I I have a, a very influential platform right now, or for the most part, and I, I I'm just going to release it. And the reason why I should now just to backtrack a little bit, the reason uh, for writing how it was inspired was for the whole entire month of November of 2016, I only ate at black-owned restaurants, uh, and I, I journalized this experience uh, on. I have a blog, and I talk about this journey of self-discovery. And during this journey of self-discovery, um, I, I journalized it and. At the end of the month, a lot of people, after reading my story and my journey of eating only at black owned restaurants, uh, they were like, wow, I don't even, like, I didn't even know that young people, I didn't even know this is what people in foster care go through. And I was like, wow, you know, there's a lot of people that don't know about foster care. So I said, you know, I have, uh, I'm, I'm, I am inspiring and I'm opening up eyes with my story. And I have a platform, but what about the thousands of other young people who don't have a platform to share their story? What about them? Because they have perspective. They have they have uh, stories that 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 need to be told. So um, and yeah, it's it's a lot. So a lot. so that's I think um, that that's important. I think storytelling is a huge part of bringing awareness. It's a huge part of um, bringing about people's having people understand and empathize with your position and that is can actually bring about change the policy change because you can recommend a policy but obviously uh the colleagues of the congress and the senate has to vote for it and for them to understand why they should is definitely an an important um aspect of that um demetrius tell us so we're coming towards the end of the show Tell us how people can follow you or get in touch with you. Oh, uh, so um, my website, it's uh, Demetrius, D-E-M-E-T-R-I-U-S, Napolitano, N-A-P-O-L-I-T-A-N-O dot com. And uh, I have like my number, my email and all of that. And that's the best way for people to contact you and, and, and follow you on social media? Yeah, yeah, all that good stuff. 
<laughs> awesome. Thank you so much for sharing your story with us Thank today. You. And I appreciate you being on the show. Um, and I, we will make sure that we share that on our Twitter and our Facebook as well for if anybody want to uh, follow or get in touch with Demetrius. Um, if you've been listening, then you've been listening to Mornings with Mubaraka on WNHHLP. We want to remind all of our listeners that uh, in Connecticut, there are various ways for you to participate if you are a loving, caring family or um, person who would like to give guidance to a foster care, um, a child who is in foster care, we want to encourage you to do so. You're going to find links to several organizations on our Twitter and on our Facebook. Um, it's really important that we understand the, and if you're able to make a difference in a child's life, that this is a great way to make it. In 2015, more than half of the children entering the foster care system were young people of color. And while most of foster care, um, foster care children live in family settings, a substantial minority, um, 14% live in institutions or group homes. So those are, those are children or young people who are not able to find a family, an individual family to care for them. Whereas we have a perception that the majority of children in foster care are very young. The average age of a, a foster care child is actually nine years old. Um, in 2015, more than 20,000 young people aged out of the foster care system without permanent families. Research shows that those who leave care without being linked to forever families have a higher likelihood than youth in general population to experience homelessness, unemployment, and incarceration as adults. Um, so we want, we know that it doesn't just affect the child. It actually affects our entire community and our entire society. So I encourage you to, uh, follow us on Twitter and on Facebook. And if you're just tuning in, then you're going to have to catch the replay of this on iClouds and iTunes. You can also go to morningswithmubarakah.com and find all of our previous shows. You can follow us on Facebook, on Twitter, and we will speak to you next Wednesday. This is Mubaraka Ibrahim reminding you to be a voice and not an echo. Thank you.